morning to all of you. It is good to be together. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And this morning we're looking at verses 9 through 13. As you go there, let me just make you aware of a fact. Uh, The biggest sporting event in the world. The absolute biggest sporting event in the world is happening right now as I speak. The World Cup final is taking place between Argentina and France. Literally billions of people are sitting in front of their television watching attentively. I say that to say simply that this is going to be a very short sermon. (laughs) Now, um, I say that because it reveals who we are, right? We're always in search of that which brings us happiness, even if only for a short while. And that has been the human pursuit for uh, many, many centuries, thousands of years since the very beginning. This was certainly true of the centuries leading up to the advent of the Lord Jesus. Commenting on that specific period of time and writing in the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards pointed out, pointed out how the centuries leading up to the coming of Jesus between the Old Testament and the New Testament was the time in which one particular academic discipline flourished more than any other, one that he himself knew very well. This discipline produced some of the most famous names and works, many of which are still around in the 21st century. I'm speaking of the discipline of philosophy. Philosophy, that word literally means love of wisdom. And in the centuries leading or prior to the appearing of John the Baptist and Jesus, philosophy was among the most popular disciplines in the world. What was philosophy's main objective? The pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. Edwards said that the supreme goal of philosophers prior to the advent of Jesus was, quote, to inquire whether wherein man's chief happiness lay and the way in which men might obtain that happiness, end quote. And so these philosophers, they wrote countless, countless books seeking to achieve that goal, happiness, happiness. But Edwards, a philosopher himself, made a passing comment as he described those philosophers who lived during the pre-Christ era. He simply spoke of them as men who, quote, wearied themselves in vain and wandered in the dark, end quote. Sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? And not only does it sound harsh, but it even, it even sounds a bit counterintuitive. After all, the men we're thinking of are the big names in the world of philosophical inquiry, names such as Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, just to name the three most renowned and influential philosophers the world has ever known. How could Jonathan Edwards make such claims about such brilliant men? Were these great ancient thinkers really wandering in the dark? 
Was their thinking really that lost? Is that a fair assessment? One contemporary theologian and philosopher, his name is John Frame, some of you have heard of the name, seems to agree with Edwards. And Frame offers the following argument, which I want to share with you because it has relevance to our meditations for this morning. Greek philosophers, such as Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, had a wide variety of differences in their thinking, especially when it came to ultimate questions. For instance, a man named Parmenides believed that nothing ever changes. Heraclitus, on the other hand, believed that everything always changes. Platonus believed that everything is perfect oneness, while Democritus believed that everything is an irreducible plurality. When it comes to the basic composition of the world, what is the basic composition of the world? Thales said it was water. Anaximenes said it was air. Heraclitus said it was fire. Pythagoras said it was Pythagoras? Numbers. Numbers. While Democritus said it was atoms. The point is that in essentially every topic and every question regarding the nature of life, reality, purpose, and meaning, Greek philosophers were quite divided in their opinions. They didn't really know the bottom line. Nevertheless, there was something all those thinkers had in common. There was one thing they shared in common, even with all their significant differences. John Frame explains this one commonality with the following words, and I quote John Frame. Here's what he said. None of the Greek thinkers believed in the God of the Bible. None ever consider the theistic worldview. Therefore, please pay attention to this. The Greek thinkers had the common task of explaining the world without reference to the biblical God. That is, they had the common task of explaining the world by means of the world. I just want to highlight that one point. The pre-Christ Greek philosophers wanted to explain the world, including the ultimate questions of life, without the biblical God as the ultimate point of reference. Instead, they wanted to explain the world in light of what they could see and experience in this world. They were stuck down here. Do you see the implications? They had a bottom-up approach, or what we could call a Tower of Babel approach, meaning they sought to figure out the answers to all these important questions themselves using raw human reasoning without the aid of divine revelation. In fact, Aristotle, Aristotle, he believed in a higher being which he called the unmoved mover. He believed in the ultimate being, unmoved mover, but Aristotle did not believe that the higher being could ever reveal anything to us. Therefore, when it comes to finding human happiness and purpose and meaning, we are on our own. We are on our own. Therefore, or to put it bluntly, we can reason our way into happiness. That's what they thought. We can reason our way into happiness and meaning. For the philosopher, reason is the beginning 
of wisdom. Reason is the beginning of wisdom. Therefore, true happiness, or to use the biblical term, true blessedness, and the way to obtain it is up to us. The Bible, however, affirms something different. Please follow along as I read our passage in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here is our third ingredient for a fully satisfying Christmas feast, true blessedness, which is the biblical way of speaking about true happiness, which was the heart of the philosophical quest of the great thinkers of the ancient time. In our passage, the Apostle John will answer four questions about true blessedness. Number one, where is it? Number two, when did it come to us? Number three, how do we acquire it? And number four, what is it? In just a few verses, the Apostle John will solve the philosophical quest of centuries. So here's the first point. True blessedness located. Where is it? Where is true blessedness? Well, the answer is eternity. Eternity. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Here's where the insight offered by John Frame is quite, quite relevant. Let me remind you of what he said concerning the Greek philosophers. They sought to explain the world by means of the world. They sought wisdom and happiness on earth by means of pure, unaided human reasoning. They tried to reason their way into happiness. But did you notice what verse 9 tells us? What is the first thing that we notice in verse 9? True light is not down here. True light is not down here. Consider the language. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was what? Coming into the world. Light had to come into the world, which can only mean that apart from the light coming into the world, the world was in what? Darkness. It seems clear that Jonathan Edwards was right after all. The great philosophers of Greece who spent their lives seeking wisdom, enlightenment, and happiness were wandering in the dark. Why? Because the light hadn't come down yet. Now, why do I locate the light in eternity? Because only God dwells in unapproachable what? Unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6, 16. And only God is said to be the one in whom there is no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5. But what is that light? What does it refer to? Well, in a general sense, when the Apostle John uses that word, more often than not, it refers to truth, while darkness refers to being without the truth. And so Greek thinkers 
of the pre-Christ era did search for happiness and how to obtain it, but they lacked one critical component in their search. They failed to understand that true light, meaning truth, the one that actually leads to happiness or blessedness, had to come down from above. We cannot produce it from below. This means that you can be a great philosopher, you can be a great scientist, you can be a great mathematician, but if all you have to work with are the raw materials of this world, and if all your inquiry is confined to the finitude of creation and the capacities of your own autonomous reasoning, then all your conclusions about all the major questions in life will be flawed. Why? Because none of these endeavors will ultimately satisfy the quest for happiness. If light doesn't enter the world from above, then we are just playing here in the darkness. You see, the true light, the true knowledge, the true truth comes from heaven and it is eternal. We cannot produce it by ourselves. It is eternal and it comes from heaven. The full identity of that light of verse 9 will be revealed in verse 14 through a statement that is both shocking and deep beyond any comparison. For now, just consider this basic insight. True blessedness, happiness in life begins when we acknowledge that apart from heavenly light entering our world from above, we would all remain in darkness here below. Or to use direct biblical language, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not rational autonomy as the philosophers thought. But we can even be more direct. Blessedness, true happiness in life begins when we become poor in what? In spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, 3. Poverty of spirit stands in opposition to spiritual pride in which we are led to believe that all the answers to all the big questions in life lie within us and that we can make up our own happiness. But that is not the truth. The true blessed life, the true happy life begins and is intimately connected to the acknowledgement that blessedness is in God, not in us. Thankfully, in verse 9, we also see what the true light did and still does. Notice what John says. It gives light to everyone. Now, here's a question. Does that mean that all men are blessed because the light enlightens everyone? Is everyone saved? Of course not. Of course not. But it does mean that all can come to the light, and those who do are blessed. Now, this reminded me of the Freemasons. This reminded me of the Freemasons. Not really in a positive way, but in a negative one. When a man begins his journey to becoming a Freemason, he is asked, why are you here? to which he must answer something to the effect of, I need the light of Masons. 
Having done that, he then enters into a society of absolute what? Secrecy. In other words, the Freemasons boast about having some sort of light. But apparently, all they want to do with it is to keep it a secret. What does the true light do? What does it do? It goes public. It goes public. Secrecy is actually contrary to the true character of the true light. Think Christian missions. What's the point of Christian missions? It is a worldwide endeavor that exists in order to make the light known to the ends of the earth. I don't know what kind of light the Freemasons claim to have, but it is not this one. Now remember, John is keeping the full identity of that light somewhat in suspense until verse 14, which we will consider next Sunday. He's just preparing us for that glorious moment. Now let's look at the next description of true blessedness. And this takes us into verses 10 and 11, which in turn takes us straight into our celebrations of this month. We know that the true light, the kind that leads to actual happiness, is eternal and heavenly, and that apart from it we are in darkness. But here's where the glory begins to be unveiled before our eyes. Here's where the Apostle John begins to unfold the very beauty and majesty of the Christian message, which is unlike anything any philosopher has ever been able to offer. So let's consider the next question. When? When did true blessedness come to us? And so here's the second point. True blessedness materialized. Materialized. This is answering the question when. And when is? What's the answer? Christmas, Christmas, verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and notice the change in language. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Once again, consider with me, the Apostle John goes from the more general description of light in verse 9 to the more specific description using a personal pronoun. A personal pronoun, he. John personalizes the light. The true light of verse 9 is not an impersonal force. But clearly the main point of these two verses is to say that the true light entered the worlds he created. Thus, in verse 10... John speaks of the true light in a new light. John says first that he was in the world, referring to the light. And then in verse 11, John says that he came to his own. So this is new information in the Gospel of John. Here is is where he begins to shock his audience. The true light who dwells in eternity became materialized. The true light, this true light became materialized. The light entered the world. I believe this is the first reference to the incarnation or what we know as Christmas, although it is somewhat indirect. And just so we don't lose sight of who we are talking about, John repeats the information he already shared in verse 3. We are still talking about the same person, namely the Word through whom all things were made. The only difference is that in verse 9, John calls the word, he calls him the true light. 
Therefore, the Word and the light are the same He through whom the universe was created. We are still speaking about the same person. The Word who was with God and who was also God is the light, and He entered the world. But verses 10 and 11 are arguably some of the saddest verses in all the Bible. John says that once the true light entered the world that he had made, two things happened. The world failed to recognize him generally, and his own people, Israel, rejected him specifically. Why? You want to know why? Here it is. Because sin doesn't like to be exposed by the light. Sin is ashamed of itself. I often remember the story of a man, or the story that a man told me of a time when he went to stay at a seminary campus in order to take some classes for a week. He said that he went to his room, and as soon as he opened the door and turned on the light, it looked as if the entire floor moved. How does that happen? Well, the floor didn't actually move. But there were so many cockroaches that it seemed as though they covered the entire surface of the room. But the light drove them away. Imagine sleeping there, huh? <laughs> Apparently, roaches thrive in the darkness. But they hate the light. Likewise, when the light of God entered this sinful world in the person of Jesus, there was a reaction. There was a reaction, a very violent one. You see, when Jesus came into the world, the light switch went up. And sin reacted because sin thrives in the dark. Herod sought to turn that light switch off as soon as he heard that a king had been born in Bethlehem. He wanted to kill him. And the Jews, the very people of God, his own people were ultimately the ones who rejected the light incarnate to the point of death, even death on the cross. They crucified the light. This is because the light can do one of two things. It can enlighten, but it can also blind. In Sodom and Gomorrah, the messengers of God shone their light so bright that when it hit the eyes of the people, it blinded them. Exposure to the light drove them deeper into their darkness. And this was also the story of the enemies of Jesus, was it not? When they were exposed to Jesus, his deeds, his words, and his life, they were blinded by it. And they were driven further into their own darkness. They stood right in front of the light, yet they could not see. In fact, the light, Jesus himself, led them into a further embrace of their own darkness. They were ashamed by the light. But the point is this, the light divides the world. In fact, have you noticed this about John, the Apostle John, that he sees the entire world? Consider this. John sees the entire world in reference to one person. That's it. 
John did not see the world or divide the world into three, four, or five or more categories of people. Not at all. For John, there are only two kinds of people. That's it. That's where it ends. That's the bottom line. There's only one line drawn in the middle. There are those who reject the light on the one hand, verse 11, and there are those who fall in the category of verse 12. And to that verse, I want to draw your attention as we give thought to the next description of true blessedness. True blessedness received. Here we're considering the question, how? How do we receive blessedness? There's only one answer, one word, faith. Faith. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name. As, as we saw, the true light dwells in eternity with God, and the light is also God, for God is what? What does the Bible say in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5? God is light. So who was coming into the world? Well, the true light was coming into the world. So who's coming into the world? It's God. So the light came into the world, and his coming into the world can have one of two effects on people. It can blind some, while it can enlighten others. And the one thing that sets those two groups apart is simply this, faith, faith. The Pharisees, they saw the light, they spoke with the light, and finally they call for the death of the light on a cross. On the other hand, a prostitute, when she heard that the light had gone into a house, she went in the house, found the light, and she who had lived a life of darkness most of her life knelt before the light and washed the feet of the light with her own tears. Why? Because the light did not blind her. Rather, the light revealed her darkness and led her to repentance. She believed. She believed. The one, the one and only point of connection between darkened humanity and the true light that came into the world from heaven is faith. There is nothing else. There's only one point of connection between darkness and light, and it's faith. Faith joins us to the true light, hence the critical importance, my brothers and sisters, the critical importance of the personal pronoun that John used to describe the light. That light does have a name. The light, brothers and sisters, this is the great news. The light is a person. The light that came into the world is a person, a human, and we know his name. This is, this is glorious. This is the, the most life-changing, world-transforming truth ever known to man. That the light, the light that was with God and who is also God into the world, and he took on himself a name. His name is Jesus. As D.A. Carson says in his commentary, what does it mean to receive Jesus? Well, to receive Jesus means to entrust oneself to him to acknowledge his claims, and to confess him as Lord. And please notice how John uses the words receive and believe interchangeably. Did you notice that? To receive Jesus is to believe in Jesus, and to believe in Jesus is to 
receive Jesus. You could paraphrase it like this. But to all who did receive Jesus, that is, to those who believe in his name. So how do you receive Jesus? By believing in him. And how do you believe in Jesus? By receiving him. How do you like that? Huh? That's the biblical language. In other words, the only way to appropriate blessed life, the blessed life, the only way to be truly blessed is by receiving, by believing in, by entrusting yourself to the one who came down from heaven. The only alternative to that is darkness. You must believe. You must trust in the name of the light who entered our world. And there is only one. There are not many lights out there. There is only one who is the light of the world, Jesus of Nazareth. Everything else in life is stuck down here, below. But Jesus is the one who came from above to give you true blessedness. So I issue a warning. Be sure you don't find yourself, be sure you don't find yourself among those who reject the light, the Lord Jesus. The true light did come from above. In the birth of Jesus, divine truth and light came down to us. Do you believe? Do you believe? But this leads us to one more question, doesn't it? We have lo looked at where truth, true blessedness is found, and that is in eternity. When it came down to us, and that is Christmas. And how we appropriate that blessedness, and that is faith. But the follow-up question, the last question we're going to ask is, well, what is it? What is that faith? Or what is that blessed life? What is true blessedness? So let me just give you a heads up. We're coming up to that which the philosophers of antiquity failed to understand. They were engaged in the quest for happiness, and they were looking for it, but in all their speculation, they never could have imagined what true happiness actually looks like. What John is about to reveal in the rest of our passage would have been a shocking revelation to the philosophers. All their philosophizing was done in the dark. But when the light appeared, the source of all happiness was finally revealed. Thus, we can say the, tr the story of the philosophers of antiquity is a very sad one. As Jonathan Edwards said, and I quote, and he said this speaking about the philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, all of them. This is Jonathan Edwards, and I quote, The world did not become wiser, better, or happier under their instructions, but grew more and more foolish, wicked, and miserable. And God was pleased to make foolish the what? The wisdom of the world to show men the folly of their best wisdom by the doctrines of God's glorious gospel, which were above the reach of all their philosophy, end quote. In other words, what Jonathan Edwards is saying is this. You can read all the works of Aristotle. 
Socrates, Parmenides, anyone, Heraclitus, name, name them, name them all. You can read them all. You can read all their pages. They're not going to lead you anywhere. They're going to keep you down here because all their thinking was done in darkness. But here it is then, true blessedness defined. Here's our last point, true blessedness defined. We're considering the question, what? What is it? Here it is, one word. Are you ready? Adoption. Adoption. Oh, few, few words are more beautiful than that. Adoption. Verses 12 and 13, to those who believe in his name. Whose name? The name of the light. Listen, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you want to shock a philosopher from antiquity, just say this, the supreme being of all beings, the one who created all things, entered his own world in order to take his creatures back to himself. And not just to take them back, but to adopt them as his own children. My friends, behold true blessedness, true happiness. What the philosophers could not find, what the philosophers could not find, literally came down from heaven to earth. True blessedness, happiness, and joy is to return to God. Darkness is to be without him. And we can return to God only because he himself came down to us. And if you believe in the one who came down to us, namely the light in the person of Jesus Christ, you are given the greatest blessing ever bestowed upon any human being in the history of the world. You are adopted by God himself. Can I point you to the obvious? Can I point out the obvious here? Adoption implies orphanhood. Adoption implies orphanhood. I looked the word orphancy, but it doesn't exist. So it's orphanhood. Therefore, true blessedness consists in this. This is true happiness. This is true joy. To know that you are no longer an orphan, but that you have been accepted by God as a son or daughter, not because you reasoned your way back to God, but because God condescended his way down to you in the person of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. A greater blessing cannot be had. It cannot be had. You can have all the things in the world. You can have a great family, a great work, a great career, lots of money and cars and everything you want. But if you don't have this, you have nothing. Here is true blessedness and happiness to know that you have been accepted by your creator and welcomed back. That your sin problem has been dealt with and that God calls you son. God calls you daughter. There's nothing beyond that. But let me point out the massively important word the one none of us can afford to ignore, become, become 
Verse 13, become. What does the word become communicate? You know what it communicates, right? It communicates a change, meaning you can only become what you are not. Thank you, Mac. He's paying attention. What you are not. You are a human. Can you become a human? Well, see, that was a test. That was a test. You cannot become a human because you already are a human. That being the case, if we become children of God, that means we were not. Because you can only become that which you are not. Therefore, to become means there has to be a change in status. There's only one who is the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ the Lord. Everyone else is adopted. How is that even possible? How can God adopt us? Well, that is possible because of what the light did, which is explained in verse 14. We'll see that next Sunday. But the point forcefully being made here is as follows. Someone becomes a child of God not because they have an innate right, but because a right is given or granted to them by grace. It says in the verse, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what they were not, to become children of God. Adoption, brothers and sisters, as God's children is the sum of all that the word blessed means. In his introduction to a little book on the Christian life, John Calvin begins with these words, quote, the goal of God's work in us is to bring our lives into harmony and agreement with his own righteousness, and so to manifest to ourselves and others our identity as his adopted children, end quote. But just as in the natural order of things, there's only one way for us to become children, and that is by being what? You know the word, born. Who said it? All right. I'm going to give you a gift later on. Good job. There's only one way that we can become children. We have to be born. So too, in the spiritual order of things, we cannot become children of God without being born. That is, born again. Why must we be born again? Because when sin entered the world and entered our lives, it killed us, spiritually speaking. We are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. Therefore, we must be born again. There must be a work within us which, in which we are given a new heart and a new mind. And that spiritual work known as the new birth is the work of God and the work of God alone. As John makes it very clear in verse 13. The children of God are the ones who have been born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There is a lot of meaning here, but we must confine ourselves to just a few comments. It is clear from verse 13 that man, listen to this, this is important, and, and some of you are not going to like this, but it's okay. It is clear from verse 13 that man cannot will himself into salvation. Did you see that in the text? Just as he cannot reason himself into it. 
He cannot reason his way into salvation because salvation had to come down. We already saw that. He, salvation had to enter our world. That's why philosophy failed. It kept people down here. And man cannot will himself into salvation either. Why? Because salvation, as John makes clear, is by the will of God. Not the will of the flesh. God saves. We don't save ourselves. But wait a minute. What about faith? Isn't faith our faith? Yes, it is a human faith. But we don't believe because we have enough willpower. We believe because it is all a gift from God. As one Dutch theologian, Herman Ritherbaugh, said, verse 13 traces the entire gift of being a child of God, including the manner in which it is affected to its deepest ground, namely procreation by God. From beginning to end, it is all a gift from God. In other words, there is no such thing as a self-made Christian. There is no such thing as a self-made Christian. There are only those who have been born again by the power of God and the power of God alone. It is all to the glory of God. Of God alone. Only God can take a man in deep darkness and bring him into the light by giving him a new heart. Philosophy ends up running around in circles. Only the gospel can save. But notice how in verse 13 it also talks about being born of blood and flesh, the will of man. So maybe there are some in this room who have been trusting all their lives in the fact that they were born into a religious family. I come from religious parents. What does this verse say? Religious family, a Christian family won't save you. It is about what God does with you. But what about the opposite? What about the other argument? You know what? I come from a very dysfunctional family. We never went to church. We hate each other. What does that tell you? That doesn't matter either. The point is, what is God doing with you? With you. And all of this brings us to then the final point that I have for you and will be done. The purpose of Christmas. What is the purpose of Christmas? To share true blessedness with cursed humanity. The Son of God, also known as the Word and the Light, entered the world by becoming a man. And he did so in order that man might be adopted by God as legitimate children. The Lord Jesus was born as a man. He lived as a man. He died on the cross as a man. He rose again from the dead as a man and ascended into heaven also as a man. And as a man, he will return for his church. Why did he do all of that? For the sake of man. So that man could be forgiven his sins by the death of the Lord and so that man could be now accepted by God the Father. Jesus is the man who is now in heaven. And because this is so, those of us who believe in his name can now to, can know that we will be with him where he is. Both our present and our future belong to him. With this in mind, let us finish by giving our attention to what John wrote in his first letter. And we'll be done. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. And I want us to read together to finish our time reading verse 1. 1 John, this is toward the end of your Bible, chapter 3, verse 1. And I want us to consider together the ultimate reason 
of Christmas. Why did it all happen? And here we see a summary statement from the same apostle who, who wrote the gospel. 1 John 3, 1, consider with me these glorious words. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so are we. The ultimate reason of Christmas then is love. Love. And the ultimate blessedness, true happiness, is to be loved by God in Christ Jesus. The question, my friend, is do you know his love? There's only one way to know it. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And trust yourself to the Lord Jesus, the one who died and the one who rose again. And you shall be saved and you will know true joy and true happiness and what it means to be blessed. He is where true happiness is found nowhere else in faith. Come to Christ today. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word which is always available to us. And we thank you for the teaching ministry of the Spirit who guides us into all truth. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for your Son, the one who became like one of us so that we could be brought back to you as children. And so, Father, as we prepare our minds and our hearts for next Sunday to consider the incarnation, Father, we pray that the Spirit will Pour in our hearts love and joy and peace that surpasses understanding. Help us to keep our eyes, the eyes of our faith, focused on Christ Jesus, the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.